1: Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm Benjamin Concannon smith your host and history teacher at Wachusett Regional High School. Before we begin, I'd like to thank you for listening in on this podcast for the New Books Network. Today, I'll be speaking with Jennifer Anderson, Assistant Professor of History at State University of New York at Stony Brook. The topic of our conversation is her recent book, Mahogany, The Costs of Luxury in Early America, out in 2012. From Harvard University Press. The title does not lie. This book is literally about mahogany. That's right, wood. Mahogany, as Anderson contends, provides a remarkable window through which to view the complexities of early American life. Unlike ephemeral goods like sugar and tobacco, which were purchased by elites but consumed and discarded shortly thereafter, mahogany was something solid, something lasting, something passed down to subsequent generations. Social engagements revolved around mahogany. Elites coveted the ornate and beautiful furnishings, which, because of its incredible density, could only be made with mahogany, and even the middling classes would indulge in purchasing a mahogany piece when it was affordable for them. But I'd be shortchanging this book if I were to say that that's all that it was about, the dissection of the social world in early America, for it does much more than that. It also tells the darker, hidden story of human and environmental exploitation, Anderson traces the wood from the slave hands that cut it down in the West Indies to the polished tables that they became in the posh estates of America's upper class. By doing so, Professor Anderson manages to blend the social story with the environmental history and the history of capitalism behind it all. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Professor Anderson, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for joining us.
0: Well, thank you for your interest in my book.
1: And I'd like to start this interview, um, as I do with every author, by asking what brought you to this project?
0: Well, I got interested in this topic initially when I was studying at the Wintertree Museum in Wilmington, Delaware, which is one of uh, the United States' premier collections of decorative arts. And it has a fantastic collection of mahogany furniture. And when I was a student there at the time, I became intrigued with the prevalence of this tropical hardwood that I saw. Um, And there were examples there that came from Massachusetts, from uh, Philadelphia, from the Carolinas, all over the United States. And I was curious about why people in those regions, which I knew were ones that had ample Uh, forest reserves of their own, you know, why would they be importing this tropical hardwood? And the curators at the time knew quite a lot about these artifacts, but sort of the backstory of them, they weren't very knowledgeable about. And so I was left with a lot of unanswered questions. And I went out and became a museum curator and worked with collections and historic sites that had still more mahogany objects. And so this question sort of dwelled with me. Right. And later, when I had the opportunity to go back and get my doctorate at New York University, I was looking for a dissertation topic. And I actually went to visit Winter Tour looking for inspiration. And I had a conversation, very memorably, with uh, the librarian there at the time, uh, whose name was Neville Thompson. And I said, I'm looking for a topic that would allow me to pursue my interests in people and in nature, and in objects. And she stepped back for a moment, and she said one word. She said mahogany. <laughs> and I took that as an oracle, and I, I, uh, I uh, said yes, of course. And and that sort of reminded me of these earlier um, musings that I had had and set me on the path. To, to actually go and explore this from the perspective of an environmental historian, but bringing with me that background and material culture that I had gained at Winter Tour and working as a curator. Right. So trying to sort of bring those different perspectives together in this, in this work.
1: Right, and that's definitely true. I mean, if you look at uh, just Atlantic trade during this period, most historians tend to focus on sugar and tobacco, and obviously slaves. Um, so what, what made mahogany different? What did you find out?
0: Well, one of the things that was pretty immediately apparent was that the nature of, of mahogany production was very involved because basically what people were harvesting in the 18th century were these very massive trees that required a lot of effort and labor um, to even begin to extract them from the rainforest. Right. And uh, unlike many other tropical commodities that were being grown on plantations where people could, you know, plant more, or expand or contract production, um, depending on what the agricultural um you know setting was with mahogany they were actually taking it from the forest so it was more of an extractive industry than uh, an agricultural industry along the lines of other plantation grown commodities
1: right and then how about the uh, consumption side of it i mean there are some major differences there as well
0: well, one of the things that I was very interested in was the way in which mahogany objects um not only gained value over the course of the 18th century but they tended to retain it because um the nature of mahogany was that it was solid and strong and long-lasting and so people would actually, you know, keep these objects and pass them along and bequeath them to other people or sell them. So the objects themselves got Histories, if you will, provenances, which um, you don't really see with other kinds of more ephemeral things like sugar or tobacco. Sure. So I guess
1: just delving into the history of it all, um, could you talk a bit about how an 18th century person in colonial America might experience mahogany on a day to day basis?
0: Well, one of the things that I was really surprised at was that my Initial impression that was was that mahogany was something that was a very elite material and that only the very uh, upper crust people in a place like colonial America would own mahogany. Sure. But uh, while I discovered that that was true in the early years of its of its popularization, which is really around the seventeen twenties to maybe around the seventeen forties, by about the middle of the eighteenth century, you begin to see it in lots of different contexts and different uh, levels of consumers as well as in public settings. Uh, For example, I found instances of mahogany tables in local taverns, even in kind of rural areas. So it had sort of become part of the material landscape of colonial Americans by the mid-18th century. So that really surprised me that it became as ubiquitous as it did.
1: So you mentioned in the book that it was almost serendipitous um, that mahogany became the sort of upper-class idealistic piece of, of furniture, I guess, or timber that it became. So if you could talk a little bit about why you think this, that would be wonderful.
0: Yes. Well, the thing that I think is is rather intriguing about mahogany, as I said, it, it becomes very, very popular, um, but it still retains sort of elite connotations um, and I think that the reason for that was that, in large measure, the, the qualities of this particular wood really resonated with people in the 18th century with ideas of what they regarded as beautiful. Um, so, for example, the wood, um, as I mentioned, was very strong and dense, which allowed it to uh, be used for very exquisite carving, and it also could take a very high polish And so during the mid-18th century, when the sort of Rococo fashion begins to flourish in England and then later in colonial America, mahogany as a raw material really lent itself to the kinds of furniture that people were making in that style. And uh, so there's sort of this interplay between the material, physical properties of the wood and the aesthetics that people really appreciated during that particular time period.
1: Right. So, and, right, and you mentioned too that in England, um, using mahogany uh, was almost a necessity because of deforestation. But that's not the case in North America, or it wasn't the case, was it?
0: No, and that was another one of these sort of slightly counterintuitive things that I that I discovered. Right. Is that exactly as you say? In England, um, the importation of, of woods—not uh, just tropical woods, but all kinds of woods—coming from Scandinavia, from Germany, from North America, as well as from the West Indies, uh, where mahogany was being initially extracted, really was was uh, important to the economy in the the British Isles, which were suffering pretty from pretty right. severe deforestation. Um, and then, by contrast, in colonial America, they were, you know, they had wood, lots of woods, and in fact were exporting large quantities of timber to England and to the West Indies, um, ironically, uh, importing tropical hardwoods and exporting their own uh, temperate types of hardwoods, oh, right. pines and other search oaks that could be used for more utilitarian things in the West Indies. Um, So what I argue is that in colonial America, there wasn't so much a need for the timber as there begins to be this desire that's motivated by the aesthetic qualities of the wood and by what they see happening in England in terms of it becoming, um, you know, a a prominent uh, feature of the Uh, elite uh, material culture initially. I think that's
1: one of the things I found most fascinating as well, um, that I just did not expect. People in England using this out of necessity, and because they're using it, and because they're the metropole, you know, Americans sort of follow in lockstep.
0: Well, it's always sort of an interesting... Question and not all historians agree on this. At sort of the degree to which um, American consumers were, you know, uh, partaking of what they call emulative consumption. Sure. Um, but it it seems to be something that you do see in the example of mahogany.
1: Right. So it varies based on commodity.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: Hmm. Uh, okay. So I guess if if you could describe the process underfoot. Um... In, in the mahogany trade industry. Uh, sort of walk us through what it takes to, to create a mahogany table from from tree to table. That would be great.
0: Well, th- what I look at in my book is uh, a, a couple of different geographical settings where mahogany was being extracted. Right. Uh, and each one was slightly different depending on uh, the terrain and the labor regime that was available. Um, But I think a really good example of a place where the mahogany trade became really important was in a place like Belize, which is a small country um, in Central America, which during the 18th century was actually Spanish territory. Um, It became a very contested area because the, the British, as they become enamored of mahogany and use up other sources want to go in there, and um, so it becomes a very politically um, charged situation, and ultimately the English have to negotiate with the Spanish to gain access to those trees. That's the first dilemma that that has to be resolved. Um, But then the second big challenge in terms of extracting mahogany, as I mentioned before, was that these trees were really large, and they were being brought um, from... Rainforest settings, which had not really been accessed um, on that scale before. Some woodcutters had been doing other kinds of smaller-scale woodcutting. But to access these huge trees, some of which would be hundreds, um, maybe even thousands of years old, was extremely uh, dangerous and labor-intensive to cut the trees and then to, to actually move them. And so one of the things that I got really interested in and that I explore in quite a lot of detail in my book is the way in which these particular um, demands of production help to spur an expansion of the use of enslaved laborers. So... Although you see English and Anglo-American woodcutters coming in to take advantage of the, 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 this natural resource, those people who actually were providing most of the, the heavy lifting, the, the actual labor to, to fell the trees and load them and uh, get them down to the waterways because they used, these massive trees would be floated down out of the rainforest to the coast and then loaded on ships – all of that very uh, arduous work would have been done by enslaved Africans. Right.
1: I know you just mentioned a few, but can you talk in greater detail about the differences between slavery, let's say being a slave on a sugar Island um, like Jamaica and being a slave in Belize tasked with cutting exotic wood like mahogany?
0: Yes. Well, it, it was certainly a very large difference and one that, that that mattered to people who found themselves enslaved in one of these settings or another. Um, and in fact, it's quite possible that people who ended up um, uh, working in the mahogany forests in Belize may have spent time in the West Indies, possibly on a sugar plantation before they end up as woodcutters, um, because in Belize in particular, many of the slaves were being imported through the markets, slave chattel markets in places like Kingston and Jamaica. Right. Um, but the, the difference that you see most markedly is that um, whereas the sugar plantation regime was a very um, relentless, hard, Labor, where people would have been uh, having to to work really uh, you know, year round um, in very harsh conditions out in the fields or in the boiling houses um, to process the sugar cane um, and boil it, you know, boil out the juice and right. have it, you know, crystallized into sugar. All of that was was uh, very regimented sort of labor that required um, a lot of supervision and. And, you know, people um, working often under pretty close supervision. What you see in the forests of Belize is very different in that in many instances, these crews of woodcutters, um, which were predominantly male, I should say, would be sent out into the forest during the dry season and often uh, only... With an overseer, they would make a base camp, um, and then smaller crews of men would go out into the forest, oftentimes really on their own recognizance. Mm -hmm. So what uh, seems to have been the case was that it was a more flexible form of bondage, in that the people enslaved as woodcutters actually... Uh, had some degree of mobility and autonomy as they went about their business of going through the forest and finding the trees felling them and then bringing them back and because of the the conditions that they were working in it forced their masters and overseers into a situation where they often had to negotiate with the slaves about what their working conditions were going to be. Right. So not to say that it was in any way a kinder, gentler form of slavery. There certainly was a lot of uh, punishment and uh, oppression you know, to keep uh, people uh, at this task. But you also see instances where um, there were systems of rewards, for example, or other kinds of incentives um, to try and encourage the slaves to to work as productively as possible, so it's a little bit more of a give and take situation than you see in the very rigid setting of a plantation.
1: Right. Um, yes, but I, I can't imagine dragging a hundred foot log through you know the jungle is, is easy.
0: <laughs> no, it was it was hard to imagine, and actually, I would. Say you know, even still today, that logging is one of the the most dangerous occupations uh, today, even with all kinds of modern uh, equipment and safety you know considerations. But even more so in the 18th century, and so slaves who actually were able to survive in that challenging environment and who learned. Uh, you know, how to find the trees and how to safely fell them, et cetera, they actually became valuable to their owners and, you know, gain prestige even among their own community because of that knowledge and that expertise. Um, and uh, so in that sense, you know, there develops a very, you know, a different set of social relations than you see elsewhere in the Atlantic.
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a really interesting how you, you sort of identify the different spheres of expertise. Um, and it seems, as you mentioned, that no one really understood the entirety of the trade as a whole. Slave units that would go out and uh, there, there'd be experts in finding the trees, cutting them down. Uh, but then, you know, once they're on the boats, then you have the, the middleman merchant expertise of how to pick the right trees, how to load them onto the boats correctly, which markets to try to sell them in. Um so if you could talk about uh, that a bit like so let's say that the trees are loaded onto the boats w- what happens next
0: Well that actually there's some very vivid descriptions um by uh sailors in the 18th and early 19th century exactly of that process because um that too was rather tricky of having to get these uh, um massive Uh, logs because the value of the wood would be greater if you could deliver a log that was of a larger scale that would then you know translate to a larger piece of furniture
1: right
0: um so the the wider the boards the more valuable the wood would be um so transporting those was very tricky and the sailors would be trying to do this often while the you know the ship was rolling at sea being able to have the, the logs on board, pack them securely so the ship wouldn't roll. Right. Um, and all of that with, you know, sharks circling below, <laughs> it was, uh, quite, quite a labor as well. And, uh, And then from there, these ships would be sailing uh, to many different uh, seaports, and I found ships leaving Belize that were heading to place, you know, ports up and down the eastern seaboard of North America, as well as to places like... uh, London, Liverpool, Dublin, as well as further afield to Stockholm or St. Petersburg. Right. Um, and uh, there, uh, you know, similarly on the other end, the, this wood would be offloaded. And at that point, um, by the mid to late 18th century, they actually had special people whose job it was to survey the mahogany coming in. And they would measure it and grade it for quality, right. and all of that happened before you know a cabinet maker then would go down and either select the wood straight from the dock or perhaps uh, work with a timber dealer who would be doing the initial selection and and milling of the wood. Um, but as you say, there are all these different spheres of knowledge, and you know each each different stage of this process involved different people, and I was really trying to sort of find the stories and each put these different pieces together to get the whole picture.
1: Right, and I think you did a a great job in doing so, um, I must say. Um, and you mentioned as well that early on in the trade, there there weren't operations that were just solely bent on delivering mahogany. It, it was sort of a, a commodity among commodities in these shipments, right? It wasn't a sort of sole
0: yes, venture. yes. Initially, it, it tended to be more incidental to other trades, and I think often that was done as a way to sort sort of balance out risk among right. different commodities, um, and. Uh, One of the things actually that was intriguing to me as I began to try and trace different people was there were certain individuals that I saw who would move from one sort of one stage of this. Process to another. So, for example, there were people who started out in New England working as sailors on board ships who later became woodcutters cover- in Belize right. or cabinet makers who developed particular expertise in selecting and using mahogany who would be dispatched uh, by their cabinet making firms down to places like uh, Cuba or. Um, uh, Haiti, in order to select the wood themselves on the spot, as it became more difficult to source mahogany, uh, so the spheres of knowledge were not necessarily um, completely isolated from each other. But you see, sort of a flow as people begin to learn the, the different nuances of the business.
1: Right. It's almost like a very, you know, rudimentary early form of credit checking as well. Right. They were checking out other people's operations for quality and reporting back to.
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, all of this uh, sort of early mercantilist system required a lot of trust on the part of individuals. And so the importance of having, you know, good networks of connections, you know, either based on uh, people that you had worked with in the past or that, you know, friends of friends or family members um so one of the ways that I actually was able to sort of trace this industry was by looking at the personal connections among different, uh, you know, merchants, woodcutters, sailors, et cetera, um, that these networks of people um, follow the economic networks, if you will, or under underpin them.
1: Right. Okay, so now I want to turn the conversation a bit. I mean, if you were a very successful merchant at this time, even if you thought that mahogany was too risky to uh, engage in, you know, with that trade, um, you were probably consuming it in some form. Um, So my question is, I guess, what were some of the most popular objects made out of mahogany during that period, and what social functions did they serve?
0: Mm. Well, that's a great question, and it's interesting. The objects that become sort of the, the most uh, in demand among merchants and other elite consumers initially are objects that were um, inherently uh, had aspects of display to them. So, for example, dining tables. Uh, were one of the most uh, prominent ones that I found, and other kinds of small tables. Which, of course, in you know, for an 18th century merchant or or uh, planter, the center of sociability would be around his dining table. There actually were sort of rituals developed about sort of how the the table would be uncovered at the end of the meal when people, before people were served dessert and the unveiling of the table became a little bit of a ritual and it was uh, you know, it was considered, you know, a mark of a person's refinement and sophistication that they would have a beautiful table to show off in this way. Uh, Other prominent Artifacts that you would find uh, in a house and that, you know, many of them survive in American uh, museums and historic houses today were things like desks, um, which oftentimes uh, also might be in a space where uh, a merchant's customers would be coming and going, uh, as well as uh, bookcases or sideboards in dining rooms so some of these objects actually were quite monumental in scale. And you look at those and you can kind of almost, you know, look through them to imagine the size of the tree that must have right. contributed to those artifacts.
1: It's, it's incredibly right. And some of the images in the book um, definitely show that, you know, a single piece of mahogany for an eight-foot dining table had to have come from a, a ginormous tree.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I wish I could have included more, more photographs because, you know, one of the things that is so striking about mahogany and that has been an endless fascination to me is that there are no two pieces of this wood that really look identical. You know, each one... Uh, is unique, and you know, I think part of the reason that you know this becomes, you know, has retained its value is that um, you know some of these, the the, the quality of the wood um, is so beautiful. I mean, it, it it strikes you; it's it's sort of a visceral response that many people have to this material, and I think that in a way that makes them kind of timeless.
1: Talking about the uh, how. Easily identifiable, mahogany was especially during this time period. And knowing what it was worth, I, I think it's a little bit odd. And you do bring it up in the book that people were actually using mahogany to make coffins as well. Can you talk about that?
0: Yes. Well, I have to say, I was surprised to find how prevalent that becomes. That um, you know, not not initially, but by the end, certainly by the late 18th century, you um, you do see this and. I was able to get a sense of this by looking at the account books of cabinet makers in which they would record what they were producing right And so for example, there are several cabinet makers in uh, New England and Philadelphia where I was actually able to go through page through you know their account books over several years and see the what they were using for making coffins and the growing prevalence of mahogany usually for their high-end products and so as with all of these you know different types of artifacts and you know just as today you can go and buy you know the 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 deluxe model of a right. bar for example or you can get sort of the stripped down version without all the bells and whistles similarly if a person went to the cabinet maker and needed to buy a coffin for a loved one who had passed away, they would be presented with a range of options from the least expensive, which would probably be a pretty plain pine Pine box, box, right right up to sort of the Cadillac version of a mahogany coffin, which oftentimes would be further enhanced with silver handles and perhaps a nameplate. Um, So, You know, again, that was a form of conspicuous consumption that probably didn't mean so much to the person who was in the box, but apparently really was meaningful to people who chose these. And whether that was to honor their loved one or if it was a a sort of a showy form of, uh, you know, pressing the neighbors. Yeah, it's hard to say.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I found that very interesting, nonetheless. Um, so you, you also you mentioned already that by the mid 18th century, owning finely crafted mahogany furnishings became a mark of status. So for the listeners, can you describe how you came to this conclusion? And sort of what types of things that historians look for when making such
0: claims? Yes. Well, what I was looking for was uh, initially, you know, when do you begin to see mahogany showing up in people's, uh, the records of their, their households and of their domestic consumption? And I was sort of looking at this from two ends. One, from looking at the records of cabinet makers of what they were producing. And for whom, and the range of materials that they had on an offer. When does mahogany begin to show up initially, Um, and then how can I trace it becoming increasingly prevalent? Um, as well as ultimately different qualities of mahogany which is something we haven't touched on was over time as I said it becomes very common that people would be using uh, mahogany um, even sort of middling people um, but they might be using a less expensive mahogany versus someone who is still buying the the, the better best quality wood Um, so looking on that end of how uh, what cabinet makers were offering presumably in response to their, their, uh, clientele's, uh, desires and demands. And then on the other end, I was actually looking at what people had in their households. And one of the ways that I would get at that was by looking, for example, at people's correspondence about what they were choosing for their households. Okay. So oftentimes when a young couple, uh, in the 18th century was married, there would be records and correspondence surrounding the setting up of their new household where I could find mentions of what they were choosing um, in selecting their, their furnishings and to what degree mahogany was, uh, was prevalent among that. And then to get sort of a sense of how this fit into the context of their household property, as a whole, and over time, I would look at things like probate inventories, right. which were usually inventories taken at the end of someone's life. And one of the things that's very striking in looking at many, many uh, probate inventories from households of different levels and different regions is that in descriptions of household contents, it was very, very common that if an object was made of mahogany, The probate inventory, the the people who were taking the probate inventory would specify that. And occasionally they might specify other woods as well, but not to the same degree or the same consistency. So it seemed to be that it was important for them to mention that. And that's why I argue that that suggests that there was sort of value added to an object that they would specify that it was made of mahogany.
1: Right. I also loved how you mentioned how mahogany appeared in portraits. I think that's um, a very instructive medium to look at when you're looking at what's important to people in this time period, because it's not like you can just take your phone out and Instagram a picture of something back then. I mean, if you were to have a a portrait done by John Singleton Copley, for instance, that would have cost a pretty penny, would it not?
0: yes it certainly would and and that was probably one of the more elite objects and one of the things that's intriguing about that is that um with portraiture as you as you suggest it it was something where people really had had time and motivation to think carefully about how they were presenting themselves to the world and Copley you mentioned um, becomes a real expert at painting not just beautiful images of people but also beautiful images of mahogany furniture (laughs) and it we believe that in fact some of the objects that he had may not even have been owned by the people whose portraits he was doing, but uh, he he used props in okay. his own studio, and so the same mahogany table might show up uh, or the same uh, chair, but uh, the idea that it was evoking this sort of re- uh, aura of refinement around the 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 person in the portrait seemed to be something that that was very much uh, in the fashion.
1: And I guess you could say it was these same sort of pretentious showings uh, in objects that were the target of growing resentment among the lower classes in the years leading up to the American Revolution. Is that right?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I have seen um, in a number of different settings, both um, in... The lead up to the American Revolution and particularly with some of the um, mob actions surrounding uh, disgruntlement over the Stamp Act and uh, other instances like that where you see colonial Americans reacting against people that they saw as representatives of the crown or representatives of uh, colonial authority that they were resisting, that the trappings of their status become marked for uh, people's anger, and indeed, there are often descriptions of this uh, of people dragging out the mahogany furniture from uh, you know the wealthy man's house and destroying it in the street and stomping on it and right. and uh, you know on the one hand it's interesting that the reporters who are describing these events mention that it's the mahogany this or that I think particularly because that was uh, to underscore. Um, the incivility of these actions. And on the other hand, you, it, you, you know this happens so often that it does seem to me that these objects were targeted as having particular meanings for people right. that in that moment uh, represented uh, sort of a stand-in, if you will, for the people who they were angry at.
1: Sure. Um, and what effect did the revolution have on the trade?
0: Well... Basically, what you see in the wake of the American Revolution is, um, well, first during the war itself, of course, there's a disruption of normal trade. And then in the wake of that, there's a bit of a realignment um, as areas that had been uh, British, uh, you know, part of the British Empire become less accessible to the United States and other areas such as uh, the French islands and Spanish islands of the Caribbean where American woodcutters hadn't really been involved, become more accessible. So there's a bit of a realignment among, uh, among those different areas. So for example, woodcutters in Belize, at least for the immediate years after the war seem to be sending more of their mahogany to England rather than to colonial America, suggesting that some of those earlier ties had been at least temporarily disrupted. Hmm.
1: Um, and so I guess that brings me to a, a good question. You mentioned earlier there's a distinct um, difference between two different types of mahogany that you're talking about. You just mentioned Belize, but I believe the the more coveted wood was um, Jamaica wood, as they called it, Jamaican mahogany. Can you talk about the yes. two different types?
0: Well, that's interesting. That's where the sort of ecological aspect of my story um, becomes important um and i really have tried to to cast my book not just as a cultural and economic history but also an environmental history and that really goes back to your point that 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 uh, the two different types of mahogany that people had access to and that were commercially exploited in the eighteenth century basically represented two different species of this of this tree we call mahogany um, and the one species was native to a very limited area. Of the northern Antilles, so Jamaica, uh, hence the name Jamaica Wood, but also islands such as Hispaniola, which is today, of course, the Dominican Republic and Haiti, as well as Cuba, and uh, even the southern tip of Florida, but a relatively constricted area. And uh, because the, the natural range of that species was so limited, those trees actually become uh, pretty well depleted early on in the 18th century and hence sort of spurs the the need to find other replacements and although that was the the wood that sort of set the standard um, and I and other historians actually have talked about Jamaican mahogany, this West Indian mahogany as as being sort of the gold standard that people initially uh, demanded. Over time they increasingly had to seek out other sources of mahogany and so the, the species that was native to Belize Um, uh, sometimes called Honduran mahogany, um, is is one that has a different quality of wood, but the trees tended to grow larger. So people over time, and it's interesting actually looking at the objects, you can... In some instances, get a good guess as to where and when that object, uh, you know, the wood for that object may have been made, judging by the scale and quality of of the wood.
1: Right. Uh, but, uh, the, but you know, merchants and companies would often try to fake the look of Jamaican mahogany, wouldn't they?
0: Yes, there was a lot of deception. And so it's actually a little tricky uh, for even the, the best furniture connoisseur, or even uh, you know, experts in wood identification, to know uh, exactly you know, which of these species it might be. Um, it's, not always, it's not always possible to discern that.
1: Well, I find that fascinating. And I also found it fascinating when you were talking about non-renewable depletion um, in the context of the Enlightenment. Enlightenment era thought uh, was it seen as less problematic?
0: Well, not necessarily. I mean, one of the things that was um, kind of a surprise to me, and that I have I have since gotten very interested in, was how actually how early on you do see people in the time period in the well even in the late seventeenth century and into the early eighteenth century commenting with with concern about the fact that they see. Uh, the forests being depleted, you know whether to clear land for sugar plantations or to you know produce mahogany for fine furniture um, you know the the notion that that it would be possible to actually deplete what seemed initially like these endless uh, rich forests. Right comes as a little bit of a wake-up call for people, Um, but actually translating that concern into policies of how to uh, regulate or control the extraction of tropical timbers is much harder to actually do. Uh, And uh, so Richard Grove, for example, has, has done some really interesting research trying to look at how ideas about eco- ecology and natural resources um, begin to kind of enter into people's consciousness. He wrote a book called Green Imperialism, which talks about this and, and uh, that was really influential for me in thinking about you know how people's awareness of mahogany depletion actually begins to uh, shape their, their consumption patterns and, and behaviors.
1: Right. And it almost seems like uh, concern is sort of hedged by the fact that, um, you know, men of science are sort of always coming up with solutions to things. So at first it seems like, well, yes, the forests are depleting, but we'll figure out a way to replant them and, you know, we'll successfully farm them. But that doesn't happen with mahogany, right? It's very difficult, as you mentioned. Uh, What's difficult about, you know, farming mahogany trees?
0: Well, one of the things that's interesting about mahogany is the way in which it, it's very much, um, interconnected as a species with the larger ecology of the rainforest. Right. So when, uh, forest was clear cut for example the conditions that mahogany would grow in normally under the wild would more be more or less destroyed and it turned out that in trying to cultivate mahogany in a plantation setting that it became very vulnerable to various kinds of invasive pests and uh then trying to restore rainforest uh was difficult to do after it had initially been destroyed. You couldn't get sort of the same mix of species, et cetera. Um, But what exactly all the different factors are that go into creating, you know, an optimal habitat for these uh, uh, mahogany species that have been, you know, they are all now – um, either endangered or you know uh, severely uh, depleted, and there are restrictions on the harvesting of mahogany today. And people are cultivating mahogany, but it is often not necessarily in the same places where the trees originally grew. Right, that's interesting. And, and so, talking about depletion again. Um
1: how did changes in technology in the early 19th century, which is, you know, when these trees were pretty depleted, change the mahogany industry?
0: Well, one of the things that I argue that that becomes a very um, important moment is the development of new kinds of steam technology. And this begins in the early 19th century and really intensifies by around uh, the 1850s. And it affects both the extraction of mahogany and the way the wood is then processed into to furniture. And what happens during that period is that the places where mahogany was still available, and as I mentioned, some places had already been depleted by then, and particularly in the in the Caribbean and Caribbean islands. Um, but in places like Belize, the advent of steam trains and steam launches allowed people to get greater access deeper into the rainforest. So it actually increased the rate of deforestation and of depletion of mahogany in many of the areas that suddenly were open to mahogany harvesting that hadn't been accessible previously. Right. And on the production end, the advent of other kinds of steam technologies um, such as uh, saws, band saws, and other kinds of equipment that was used for processing the wood, um, it allowed for greater efficiency. And, for example, people began to use many more um, uh, mahogany veneers, which were now being sliced up very, very thin using new steam saws, and it was much Uh, you can get much more veneer out of a single log than could ever have been done using hand saws. But at the same time, you see an explosion of consumption that many, many many more people suddenly have access to these less expensive um, veneers. And uh, so ultimately, where people initially had said that, oh, you know, this technology would be something that would help conserve mahogany, um, it actually has the opposite effect of you know increasing production increasing consumption
1: right right so you're on the one hand you know preserving the resource by cutting thinner veneers and getting more out of each piece but on the other hand just going through much more wood much more quickly
0: exactly exactly
1: and uh, you you just mentioned how veneers democratize mahogany allowing more people uh, in varied classes to purchase it to some degree how did the upper classes respond to this
0: Well, there I think you see, um, as is often the case, or sort of an effort by people who see themselves as being in the elite sphere and who who are the high-end consumers, is that they really sought to differentiate themselves from uh, more middling consumers by either buying uh, higher quality mahogany veneers, um, which were always available, um, or they by the mid 19th century they begin to seek out other even more exotic woods like rosewood and ebony that become popular during uh, what we would call the Victorian period so there's a proliferation of different kinds of exotic woods, um, but mahogany still retains its its specialness, but it becomes um, you know there are different grades of mahogany that separate. Uh, some people out from others, or so I argue in the book. And you
1: said that mahogany sort of waned on the cultural, um, you know, plane in the 19th century, the late 19th century, but it still held held deep-seated cultural connotations for many Americans. Um, Could you talk about what you mean by that?
0: Well it never really goes away as I say you know mahogany there becomes part of a you know a larger repertoire of exotic woods that people are using in the 19th century but I think even still today if you say something is mahogany it you know it does have certain connotations of a quality and an elite status that right. that that most people kind of understand what that what that means Um, so it's interesting to me that that has continued. Um, even as you know, mahogany, um, as I said, it's a protected species now, but it's still being used for example, for making fine yachts and, uh, you know, really high end furniture, Uh, but lower grades of mahogany are routinely used for making things like decking on people's houses. Um, and, uh, so sort of the reality of how it's being used versus you know, the, the, the cultural associations people have with it don't always exactly align. Well, I guess I just have
1: one last question, which is, do you think that there are modern lessons to be drawn from your book? That's often like the worst and most difficult question to receive, but I have to ask it.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think the thing that I hope that readers come away from my book Um, with a a new appreciation for is that these objects that today are, you know, celebrated as um, masterpieces of American craftsmanship. So if you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Museum of Fine Arts uh, in Boston or you go to Monticello or you go to Mount Vernon, you will see beautiful mahogany objects that were used by, uh, the founders of this nation um, but what I would hope my readers would have also an appreciation for is that these objects also represent uh, this in- tremendous investment of labor of people who worked under often very harrowing conditions as well as an investment in nature if you will because they really represent um, you know a generation of generations of uh, tropical forests that were destroyed 200 years ago and this is what's left of them um, and uh, as we think today about you know, what the challenges are of uh, our planet in dealing with questions about deforestation and all of the human and ecological consequences that flow from that not least of which is uh, issues around climate change um, that uh, it is kind of a humbling reminder that uh, the beautiful objects that people surrounded themselves with in the 18th century certainly came at at a high cost
1: definitely Um, well I guess I I lied because I want to ask one final question which is is, and I have to ask this as well uh, because I'm just curious is there any mahogany in the Anderson household
0: oh I get asked that quite a lot (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I have to say that I have one very small tea table that my husband got for me and that I uh, value very much as sort of a symbol right. of this that I've done. But I keep all, the, all my finest mahogany I keep at the Metropolitan Museum here in New York. And anyone can come and visit it because uh, uh, it, it really is a shared treasure.
1: Well said. Well, thank you, Dr. Anderson. Thanks for joining us.
0: Well, thank you.
1: And thanks for listening. Again, Professor Anderson's book is Mahogany, The Costs of Luxury in Early America, out in 2012 from Harvard University Press. Till next time, I'm Benjamin Concannon smith